Hey everyone, welcome back to Human Apologetics. Pumped to join us today to have Dr. Bethany Solaratter um, talking about her book, Why Is There Suffering, and talking about like the problem of evil. And I love Bethany's approach; it's gonna be great. So, Bethany, thank you for joining me. How you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm really glad to be on this again, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm super pumped. And did I get your last name right? We literally just reviewed it like 10 seconds before I press <laughs> yeah. record. Solaretter. Although that is not the German pronunciation. So who knows how it's really meant to be pronounced. Uh, <laughs> I just, I think whatever people attempt is right. So <laughs> I have my last name's Seckler, but it's like spelled like S-E-C-H-L-E-R. So I just mm -hmm. hear all kinds of like crazy pronunciations. Maybe not as much as you do, but I, I understand the struggle of having like a German-ish last name and absolutely that comes with it um so today we're not gonna be talking about last names though we're gonna be talking about bethany's book why is there suffering looking at the problem of evil and bethany has a really like um cool unique approach behind this book so to get things started bethany do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and like your motivation behind this project yeah so uh i'm i'm bethany and i am a research fellow at campion hall at the university of oxford right now just about to move to edinburgh to be a lecturer of science and religion there. And I, I think I first sort of encountered the problem of suffering when in, in sort of a real existential way when I was working at a church and just found out that the, the pastor was abusive, not, not sexually, but really manipulative, really difficult, and, and was ruining lives around me. And I just thought, how, how in the world can God allow this to happen? I mean, you know, if there was a time for a thunderbolt here or there, you know, this person is talking your name while doing terrible things, uh, might be the point, God. And so I started getting into this question of sort of what, how do we explain why we go through, through such suffering in this life? And I think what struck me was that different people gave completely different answers with all the best meaning. And, and these weren't people who hadn't gone through terrible things. They had, and they were giving me the best that they had to offer. And yet their answers were often diametrically opposite. So some would say, well, God is doing this to prepare you for some future good. It's all part of God's plan. And other people would say, God absolutely does not want this to happen. This is not part of any part of God's plan, but God will respond to it with compassion and with creativity to redeem it in, in some way. And then other people would say, you know, it's just a mystery and you have to, you have to be able to surrender. And I remember sort of a finding some of those more helpful than others, uh, but also realizing that in each of these people's lives, these had real power to help them get through suffering. And so that, that kind of started me on this process of sort of how, how do we understand not only what are the sort of academic answers to why do we suffer, but how do they play a part in, in people's lives? And how do, how do people make decisions about which answer they're going to use? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. Thanks, Bethany. And I think what you just brought on really elaborates like the human side of looking at like the problem of evil or just like how we view things in general, because um, depending on our experiences and like the way our our minds are wired, uh, we may have all kinds of different explanations for why things occur. And I think when we get to the problem of evil, which is a super complex topic that really reveals itself and just all the different answers that you talk about in your book. So yeah, I think it's great. Yeah. So I kind of, I, I, so when I was trying to write a book that was about the problem of evil, I, I wanted to give people 
that same sense of discovery that I had while I did my PhD on the problem of suffering, where I was reading all the different options and getting a sense of all the possibilities that were out there, and then trying to decide what I thought. And so I sort of thought, how in book form do you give that agency back to the reader? How do you let people decide what they think and let them be part of the discovery process? And I remembered that when I was a kid, I loved these books called Choose Your Own Adventure. Uh, and they were novels where you would, you would change the plot as it went along through your decision making. So, you know, you're the little girl wandering through the forest and you come to a fork in the road. And if you want to go up towards the castle, you turn to page eight. If you want to go down towards the lake, you turn to page 11, you know, that, that kind of thing. And so I, thought, I wonder. I wonder if I could use that in theology, uh, and that and that's what sort of informed this book was that desire to give the reader the chance to really have freedom in making theological decisions, but also bring a sense of play, uh, a sense of you don't have to get it absolutely right the first time. You can go back. You can try again along a different path. You can explore without saying, you know, I need to have the right answer first time round. Mm -hmm. So Bethany, the whole point, like one of the big points of your project is to um, look at the problem of evil and try to like look at the different paths that are available to explore. So to start things off, like what is the problem of evil and like why should Christians take it seriously? Oh, sure. So uh, the, the problem of evil is usually uh, brought down to, to sort of three statements that appear irreconcilable which are that God is good and all loving, that God is powerful, and that real evil exists. So the, the usual sort of thing is if God is all powerful and God is all loving, you wouldn't expect real evil to exist because you'd think that God would use that power to eliminate evil. If you had a God who wasn't all powerful, then it would make sense because you'd have God who's all loving but can't actually stop evil because God's not all powerful, you know, or you would have a world where evil exists, but it's because God doesn't care, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, two, two of the three are really easy to sort of understand. All three become really tough. And I think the reason Christians should care is, is uh, I mean, there's the, the apologetic reason, which I'm sure many of your listeners will care about, which is that it's usually the number one or the number two question for why people, when they say I'm not a Christian, say I'm not a Christian. They say I can't, I can't mm -hmm. accept that a good God would allow a world like this. But I think far more importantly than even that is that it matters what we think about God. I think our, we all walk around with a certain vision of God in our mind, and that defines how we relate to God and ultimately how we relate to each other. And so I think that the sort of the way that we see God is how we're going to also see ourselves and see other people and how we treat ourselves and treat other people will be a reflection of how we think God treats us. Mm. I think that's super great, Bethany. So one of the things I love about your book is you talked about this like idea. It's like a choose your own adventure book where you're looking at the problem of evil and you're not like putting out your own theodicy and here's like where mine works and why, here, why here's what these other views fail or something like this. Um, so can you talk a little bit about like the format of the book and how it's structured and, and, and how it like works to respond to the problem of evil? Yeah. So it, it starts by asking, uh, you know, a theological question every couple of pages. So it's meant to be read um, 
you know, you could follow one whole path in half an hour um, at, at the sort of longest. So it, it's meant to be read in, in little sittings, walk along one path, go back, try another one at another time. Um, mm. The the one thing that is is deathly, if you read this book, is to read it cover to cover and mm -hmm. to not follow the instructions. I've had a few people who've done that and they've just been like, I was lost, I was disoriented. And I was going, well, yeah, you can't just... <laughs> You, you, you've, you've been teleporting all across the landscape. You've got to follow the paths and sort of, you know, mm -hmm. follow the, the discipline of the book of walking along. Um, but it, it, it starts with actually sort of a version of that question. Uh, is God good? Is God loving? Is God powerful? Um, or, or does God exist at all? And so the very first question you're asked is, what is God like? And your first three options are that God is loving and powerful. The second one is that God exists, but does not love us. And then the third one is that God does not exist. Mm -hmm. And so let's imagine we walk along the God is love. Okay, so God is loving and powerful. Then you start to ask, well, okay, but then why is there this evil? And so at that point, I sort of give four different options. One is, um, you know, that that there's a, there's a, there's a mysterious element to God being good and powerful, and we simply won't ever have an answer. The second one is that God is powerful, but that power is mediated by the free will God gives to people. So people can make their own choices, and that introduces a source for evil that is outside of God. Um, the third would be the idea that God is not omniscient in the sense of not knowing the future. And so this is sort of pulling on open theism, the idea that um, that although that God is co-creating the world with us, and so God doesn't necessarily know how each choice will pan out ultimately, even though ultimately God will creatively redeem everything. And then the, the, the fourth option is simply that God has very limited power. Um, you know, that that um, that God is loving and God is good, but God is not actually all powerful or that God's power is expressed largely through empowering rather than through sort of overriding power. Mm -hmm. uh, and each of those. So each of those are four different sorts of options that start to think about what the divine attributes are in relation to the world. Mm -hmm. So we have these four different options that you start with. I'd be curious, like Bethany, like for you and like your own personal perspective, like what path would you kind of take um, when we're starting to like look at the question of like, why would God even allow evil? Well, I think, I think it really depends. Um, I think different answers are appropriate for different situations. Mm -hmm. So part of, part of doing a multi, multi uh, option is because I think there are really different kinds of suffering. So if you look at something like uh, the pain systems in our body, we, we feel pain and that's a really good thing because it protects us from dangers in the world. So we notice the stove is hot. We notice we're walking on something sharp. We, you know, and, and we avoid those things. So people who cannot feel pain actually don't live flourishing lives. Um, there are people who are born without the ability to feel pain, but also something like um, uh, Hansen's disease, which used to be known as leprosy, is simply damage to the pain nerves and all the other uh, damage that we associate with it, you know, fingers falling off or that kind of thing. 
um, massive gouges in the skin aren't actually from the original disease. They're from those people not being able to protect themselves. Mm. So Paul Brand in The Gift of Pain talks uh, about working in a hospital in India. And one of the problems was rats were coming overnight and chewing off his patient's fingers and they didn't, they didn't wake up because it didn't hurt. Mm. Um, and so, you know, like pain is a really good thing that comes out of the sort of freedom of creation to develop itself. So I'd say like, that's not a, that's not a mysterious reason. <laughs> that's yeah. not something we can't figure it out. Uh, but it comes through the sort of freedom of the world and, and the way that our bodies have, have built themselves to protect ourselves. Um, whereas, you know, other, other types of suffering, uh, I think, can be explained other ways through, through this sort of sense of God's power being empowering rather than overriding. So I think when, when people choose evil, God doesn't override that. Um, because of the the very nature of the gift of God's love to the world uh, means that God won't override people's choices. Um, and then I think that there is some evil that just absolutely cannot be explained that 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 our our attempts fail. And I think of mm. you know mass horrors, um, systematic evils that that you know there's there's no good reason for why they should still be in place, but they are. And and the the suffering that entails for people are, are simply horrendous. And mm -hmm. even even trying to explain it can can be a horror in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things I was wondering about as I was reading your book, Bethany, and I'm sure this is a common objection that you get a lot, but a lot of people might be worried that like, hey, you're putting yourself as the reader like as God. Um, you're kind of like choosing like why you think there should be like why there's evil and things like this. But the question we really should ask is like, why is God allowing evil? So how, if, if you're tra tracking with me, how would you kind of respond to that kind of worry with your book that it kind of um, pushes people towards like making them the, the decision maker on why God allowed this evil rather than like just trying to like try to understand what God wants? Well, so I'm, I'm not trying to uh, put them in the place of God so much making mm -hmm. them be the theologian. Yeah. Uh, so whenever we read theology books, we're not reading the direct truth of who God mm -hmm. is, right? We're always mm -hmm. reading uh, human interpreted models of who we think God is. And so mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do is make explicit the sorts of decisions that theologians generally make on our behalf when they write their books. And so mm -hmm. until you read six different books on the atonement, you don't realize that actually the way they're interpreting that particular biblical passage or so on and so forth is actually very different. And you notice this even more when you read historical writings, when you read the church fathers or you read Luther or you read uh, Zwingli or you read, you know, suddenly they're mm -hmm. taking a passage and they're doing something totally unfamiliar with it. And you're going, how in the world did you get to that? And so, mm -hmm. so you know, any time that we have a a view of God, it's more like, I think our theology is more like a model versus the real thing. So like a model train is going to have a lot of things in common with a real train, but it's desperately simpler than the real thing. You know, it's des desperately more minute. And so I think, I think, you know, with all of our theology, I do believe in 
God having particular traits, uh, God being all loving, God being all powerful, God being all knowing. But what we mean by those um, has a lot of different theological possibilities. So I'm, I'm trying to show that to the reader in, in a way that I hope is not confusing, but actually invites them in and, and allows them to become a theologian in their own right, rather than just having them sit back and, and, and me make all the decisions for them. I, I think that, that um, that's not a great way to learn about who God is because God is absolutely relational and God wants to work with mm -hmm. people. So I'm hoping um, that it will actually be uh, a, a, a spiritual practice as well as a theology. Mm -hmm. So I fought very hard for Zondervan to put it in the Zondervan reflective uh, mm -hmm. brand rather than the Zondervan academic. Cause I said, this isn't an academic book. This is a book that takes people on a journey of faith to ask them what, what they think and, and, and asks them to explore. Mm. Yeah. I like what you're saying. And it reminds me, I think I remember reading this in the book. Um, and if not, I have no idea where this thought's coming from. Um, but you, you talked about like you interacted with a lot of work on the problem of evil, like during your doctoral studies and things like this. And you read it, I believe it was a Marilyn McCord Adams who had a very different like um, perspective where a lot of the other books you read talked about like very like intense, um, horrendous cases of suffering. And like Marilyn McCord Adams had like a little bit lighter take on things, which kind of opened your eyes a little bit to see like, hey, um, this is kind of good, a good way of thinking about evil and even like might prevent us from like getting too emotional when looking at the topic. Is that, is that something yes. right about your book? Yes, that's right. Except it's Eleanor Stump. So, oh, okay. So Court Adams is just the opposite. She starts each chapter oh. with a <laughs> friend is suffering. And, and what I found when I was reading for my dissertation was I just got horrifically depressed because it turns out mm -hmm. there's only so many stories of sort of Nazi concentration camp horrors mm -hmm. you can read without just breaking down and weeping, you mm -hmm. know? And so, so you're sitting there emotionally responding to, to these horrors you're reading about. And then they're like, now let me justify this with, you know, mm -hmm. formal logic. If A, then A prime, mm -hmm. B, yeah. you know? And I just thought, I can't follow that. Like I'm still too distressed by what happened to mm -hmm. people on, on page one. So um, Eleanor Stump, in her brilliant, although rather long book, uh, Wandering in Darkness, uses sort of everyday examples. So they're, they're, they're small examples of suffering. They're things like um, a brother who is a musician can't share the deepest part of his life with his sister who's tone deaf. You know, mm. so, I mean, there is suffering there, but it's not the kind of horrendous evil that sort of wrenches your heart and makes you unable to process anymore. Um, and so I tried to emulate that in this. There's no, well, there's one chapter that has sort of an example of, of horrific suffering, but I give lots of warning getting up to it. And it's because I couldn't, I couldn't think of a way to do Dostoevsky's sort of thought experiment in, in the Brothers Karamazov without that. But even then, it's, it's not nearly as bad as much that really goes on in the world. Um, but the other reason was that most of us, when we when we walk into thinking about suffering, what's really on our hearts and our minds is our own story. And so I figure mm -hmm. if if people can bring their own examples to the table, that will provide a richer example for them to test the ideas out on than some abstract suffering of somebody who we don't 
we don't know, we've never met, we've not seen how their story has played out. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think it also helps us to like think more clearly about the topic. Like I know like in like debates or like books I've read um, where they bring up these like really intense examples of suffering, it then becomes very hard to think clearly exactly with regards to the problem of evil or things like this, because you're very bogged into like, well, what about that intense suffering? Like, oof, just yeah. like really took my heart or something like that. Um, so yeah, I think this is something super great and it allows you like as the reader um, to really explore and think things clearly as you're reading your book. So yeah, I think that's something really great that you're doing. Yeah, I just I like that sort of gentle approach and wanted to wanted to emulate it and, and, and invite again. I mean, our theology of suffering is a really important and serious topic. But I think sometimes what that can mean is that we're inflexible in our approach to it. And so I, I tried to use a relatively lighthearted approach, not to diminish the seriousness of the topic at all, but to say theology is creative. It's, it's, mm. it's, it's less like a set of laws about God, and it's more like a dance that we partake with God, <laughs> you know, mm. as, we're, as we're trying to figure out how to move with the spirit and move, as you said, how to figure out what God wants. And mm. I mean, there's no way that a book can contain all of that. But I think that hopefully, a book can draw us in to the adventure of, of that discovery um, and, and kind of catch the music a little mm. bit, catch, catch the rhythms of divine grace. And I think one of my favorite writers for doing that is a guy named um, Robert Farrar Capon, whose, whose books are just wild. He's, he, he writes theological cookbooks, for example. So he writes, he mm. writes books where he starts to teach you a recipe and then he gets distracted by theology and metaphysics and then he slowly gets back onto the topic of food and then he veers off again and and you know but he has a book called um the third peacock which is about the problem of suffering and it's totally unlike any other book on suffering i've ever read it's it's funny it's witty it's it's profound um and i think it sort of drew me in to the sense that what what we're really after in all of this is is a clearer vision of God's heart. We're not actually often after an answer um, in in a formal sort of philosophical sense. Some people are, um, but turns out I'm not. So for the people who want formal formal philosophical answers, there's lots of books out there that that do that. But for those of us who who want to sort of try and discover the grandeur of God in relation to this question. Um, this is a book for, for those of us who, who want that. Mm. To me, it even goes to the idea of like thinking of like Israel as like the meaning, like the ones who wrestle with God, like your books helps you to really like wrestle with the different like ideas of explaining evil. It's not like, Hey, free will plus the fall, boom, end of the story, game over. It's like, Hey, wrestle with these things. Think about these things. Look at these different paths and try to understand um, what's going on here. And it's really intellectually freeing. I feel like reading your book, looking at all the options there are. Great. That's just what I hope. You know, I mean, some people have critiqued me for having atheist paths in there as well. You know, mm -hmm. so they sort of read down the atheist path and said, like, well, you're a Christian. I thought I thought you'd sort of crash the atheist path and show that, you know, those are dead ends. And I thought, no, I, mm -hmm. I genuinely tried to defend every view I included and to make sure I was being kept honest in that. Mm -hmm. I, I invited Richard Dawkins, my colleague here in Oxford, to read through the atheist path. So he read through it and I said, is it a straw man? Have I said anything that you would object to? And he said, no, you, you know, you've, you've, 
there's more that could be said, but you've represented sort of my views well on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I, I really I really wanted to sort of say people have have freedom to explore these options without uh, without an apologetic bias. Like the decision making is in the reader's hands. I'm not secretly trying to pull people towards any particular option. And I think that our views of God are always going to be deeply influenced by our life experience. We often don't give enough weight to that. So a good example is God as father is a biblical image. It's a very powerful image. It's a rich, multifaceted, helpful image of God. Um, Mm -hmm. But for somebody who's had a really abusive father, that may be all those things may be true, and yet they may be unable to link with that image. It may just be their experience of fatherhood is so damaged that a different image, like God as fortress, is just more useful. It's it's something that they can grab onto. It's something they can emotionally connect to, and it's a way for them to imagine God that allows them to draw closer to God in the way that God as father doesn't. And I think I think one of the problems with sort of systematic theology is it tends to say, here's the answers that, 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 that God is like this and like nothing else. And you have to, you have to, you know, this is the stronger, mm-hmm. you know, God is father is a stronger image than God is fortress. And therefore you should rate it the same way. And I just think we need a bit more flexibility, you know, mm-hmm. Jesus used a multitude of images depending on who he was talking to, who he was dealing with in response to people's needs and people's experiences. And I just think we should do the same. Mm, yeah, I think you're right. I remember I listened to John Piper's Coronavirus in Christ book just like a month or two ago. Um, and, you know, he's obviously coached and explaining evil, like a very like Calvinistic um, route and explaining evil, which is like fine. Like I may not be the biggest fan of it, but like reading your book compared to like Piper's book, just two very different kinds of books and not saying like either approach is like the best or the worst. Or da, da, da. Um, I would never say yours is the worst. No. <laughs> Um, but like, it, it, it's really helpful. Like when you can see, like as Christians, like there's all this room within Christianity to explore these things and wrestle with these things. And we don't have to follow like one specific path and your book really opens. Even when you look at the front cover where there's like two paths going each way and it's like, well, there's a lot of different ways we can go and paths within those paths and so on. Yeah. I, I really liked the cover because there are two, two paths on the book, one going each way. But then the the finder part in the middle actually has three arrows, one going down the path where there is no path. Mm. And so that, you know, I wanted that because I, you know, there's this fork in the road and an arrow pointing down where there isn't a clear path. And I think that that's, that's the idea that although I've laid out all these paths, there's also paths between those paths that the reader might say, you know, I, I, I agree 60% with that one, 40% with this one, but actually you've missed something, Bethany. There's another path here that you forgot to do. And so I just encourage them, like, write your own path as well. Like, work this out. Don't, don't take this as, as comprehensive or absolute. This is, this is merely a map to a landscape that's much more complex than what a map can hold. I love this because it goes against like some of like what I was taught in university in a good way. Like I wrote my senior thesis um, and it's like you have your thesis statement and that's what you defend. It's not like you're like, hey, maybe you went this way, maybe you went this way. We don't really know. You kind of find your route and you defend it. And like a lot of the books like you read, like I was looking at a list of books I've read recently just thinking about this, but like a lot of them like have their thesis or their couple like main points and they spend the book defending them. 
Um, in your book, you're like looking at all these different paths. And I know we're, I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but I'm just trying to, I'm trying to emphasize, like, there's something like really amazing and freeing about like the approach you're taking. I just love what you're doing. So, yeah. I mean, that's really what I was aiming for. So that's really helpful to hear. And I think when I learned theology, uh, the majority of the time it was sort of, this is, this is the way things are, you know, this is, this mm. is the truth and this is the only way to think about it. Um, and I always had questions around the edges of that. Uh, mm. And and eventually I founded the Heresy Club at my Bible college just because, you know, I sort of <laughs> wanted to discuss all the things that everybody else is uncomfortable with. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that was that was tongue in cheek, obviously, uh, you know, ne never knowingly unorthodox. Um, mm -hmm. But um, I, I think that even engaging with things that I don't agree with and engaging with them honestly, not just as a straw man, but as real possibilities of how people have engaged with God uh, helps deepen and enrich my experience. So I'm not defensive in theology. I, I, I can be inclusive and that that's not saying not discerning either. So I think sometimes one of the things people say is like, aren't you just relativistic? Aren't you saying just that, you know, if, if you're happy with it, then it's fine. Mm -hmm. And in one sense, insofar as if a particular model helps you grow closer to God, right? If there's fruit, um, you know, the spirit's fruit grow in you through a particular model, then I'm, then, yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. Mm -hmm. But if that model is not serving you, if there's some block for that, then it's time to try something else. And I think that often we're discouraged from looking for that something else because we're we're worried that people would, you know, um, drift away or that they'll, you know, become disillusioned or whatever. But I sort of think any any faith worth having has to have looked into the darkness, has to have investigated the questions and, and come out the other side of, of that. And so that's also why I didn't weaken the the atheist positions or some of the new age positions I include in this is because I think in the end Christianity just tells a great story and, mm -hmm. and one that stands up when everything is presented as as strongly as it as it can be. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of like when I read the like I remember finishing reading the last battle of C.S. Lewis like I was in my dorm room a few years ago and it, like there's the end and everything's restored right and I'm just like this is beautiful. Like, I was like, I always was like, I was like six year old kid that was like wondering like what on earth is heaven? Like, like I'm just gonna like sit, am I gonna just like be glued next to God for forever? And then like, I, and I read, I read Lewis just a few years ago and the end of that book. And I'm just like, wow, I never thought about it this way before. And it's so beautiful and so freeing. Um, so I don't know where I was going with that, but something you said, uh, the narrative, it was the narrative aspect of like thinking about Christianity is like a beautiful narrative. And like, you can see yeah. it and like reading Lewis and different people, like you can really see the beautiful narrative aspect of the Christian story. So, so a little, a little Easter egg. I actually wrote the majority of this book when I was living in C.S. Lewis's house. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and so in, in the there, I got a, a wonderful D and D map maker to actually create the, landscape that the book takes you through. So it does take you through intellectual options, but I set those into a landscape, sort of the open plains of freedom and, you know, the mountains of mystery and that kind of thing. So it's sort of Pilgrim's progressy as well as, 
as mm -hmm. well as working through the intellectual. That's what author. I thought reading the book. I was like, this reminds me of when I read The Pilgrim's Progress. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Except you, you get to make Christian's decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but if you get to chapter thirty-seven, if you look at the back, there's a little, there's a little house. Sorry, I'm not doing this very well because it's mirrored. There's a little house, and that's actually the kilns. And so, although I don't mention him in the book, you walk into this home in that chapter and you sit down and you meet an old professor. And so that's C.S. Lewis. Mm. So there's, there's um, for anybody who knows the layout of the house or who's done that, they will hopefully recognize uh, the description and who, who you're having tea with in that chapter. Amazing. I didn't even know you could live in C.S. Lewis's old house. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. So the C.S. Lewis Foundation, which uh, owns it, uh, does have both short-term and long-term residential options. So anybody who uh, wants to come, there is sort of a screening process and you have to have a, you know, an intellectual project you're working on. Uh, but if you're coming to Oxford, it's a great place to stay for both short-term or if you're staying as a student for a year or more. Um hmm. Yeah, it's great. So I, I got to be the warden of that place for a couple of years, lived there for four years entirely. And it was it was really fun because you had so many people coming through uh, that were just fascinating. Now we're way off topic, but I couldn't help <laughs> you applaud because- it's Well, no, really that's amazing. And that's just the nice part of just having a conversation is you can go off topic. And I'm not like, Bethany, get on the script. Come on, Bethany, we're not doing this right. Um, so no, that's why I love just like being flexible because you're like, oh, wow, you live in C.S. Lewis's house. That's crazy. I just can't imagine just being like, oh, that's where he like made food or something like that. I was just yeah. like, you know, but yeah. Well, and you know, it's where he wrote um, the A Grief Observed, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a problem of pain. So you, so you're kind of wandering around, writing about suffering, and even about his views of suffering. Thinking, oh wow, he penned those probably, you know, in this room. Um, mm. A little, little strange, but wonderful. Yeah. Well, Bethany, I feel like we covered a lot of ground here. Anything else you want to bring up or talk about before we wrap up here? I'm, I'm thinking about that. I think, I think we've, we've done uh, a pretty good job. So thank you for guiding us with your questions. Yeah, thank you for doing this. And I highly encourage people to check out the book, Why Is There Suffering? It's linked down below in the description. And yeah, thank you so much, Bethany. I really appreciated this conversation. And yeah, it's great to talk to you again. And a lot different topic. Last time we did something on like evolutionary evils and stuff like that. Pretty intense. And this time, a very lighthearted conversation about the problem of evil. Um, very important topic. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate it. You're really welcome. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Yeah, thank Bye. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Hope you have a good one. And God bless. We'll see you next time. If you value our content, I can consider becoming a patron. Patreon.com. So I should hear an apologetics. Little is a dollar a month and it helps a lot. But Bethany, one last time, thank you so much. It's been great. And we'll see you next time. So bye everyone.